from chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinab and had him pass in front of Samuel. Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Thanks, Rob. Well, good morning and welcome. It's uh, great to be with you this morning. Uh, welcome if you're here for the first time or maybe uh, the first time this side of COVID. I know week by week there's uh, more of us coming back uh, to, to gather together and what a, a privilege that that is. And it is, is great to look out and, um, and see your faces, albeit masked faces. Um, looking forward to uh, being able to, to remove our masks, I think from the 15th or thereabouts of December, assuming the goalposts don't move again. Uh, let's come before God and pray as we uh, consider his word. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for this time that we can gather together. Father, we ask that you would speak to us. We ask that you would shape us and mould us, that we would see as you see. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you get a group of people together, you are likely to get about as, about as many points of view as there are people. Uh, people have different points of view, whether it's about uh, sport or politics or environmental issues or the latest political or, or celebrity scandal or whatever it is, whatever issues there are, there will be different points of view. So what do you do with these differences? Do we just kind of accept all points of view as equally valid. I mean, that's, that's kind of the mood of our day. That's, that's the, our postmodern world that we live in where we supposedly uphold tolerance, where if I hold one point of view and you hold another point of view, then, then we should just accept 
one another's points of view as just different, unless, of course, your point of view uh, imposes upon me and my individuality in some unwanted way, in which case I'll shout you down and tell you what an intolerant bigot you're being. But otherwise, I shouldn't try to assert my point of view as somehow superior to yours. They're just different. I see things from this angle, this perspective, given my background, my situation, and you see things from that angle, that perspective, given your situation and background. That's kind of the mood of the day. We should just accept different perspectives and understandings and points of view. But what about when our points of view clash, when you can't actually accept both as equally valid? Now, one issue where people have different points of view is regarding the person of Jesus. One point of view is that Jesus is, in God's purposes, the rightful ruler of the whole universe, the saviour that all people need and the judge of all people. That's one point of view. Other people have other points of view that don't see him in that way. And in our mature, sophisticated, postmodern, tolerant age, we're supposed to just accept both as just two different points of view, which really is a nonsense. I mean, you can't say that Jesus is the rightful ruler, saviour and judge of all for one person, and he's not the rightful ruler, judge and saviour of all for another person. It just doesn't work. This is the problem of the points of view. And we're going to see a solution to this problem this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now we've been reading our way through 1 Samuel over recent weeks just to, to recap the people of Israel wanted to have a king. They wanted to be like the other nations and the Lord gave them Saul as their king. Uh, we've seen that Saul is a, is a disappointing failure. He failed to keep the commands of the Lord. He, he didn't trust and obey God. And so the Lord told told Saul through Samuel that he will choose someone else to be king. That's where we pick things up in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. You can look with me in your Bibles or it'll be on the screen also. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Samuel here is mourning for Saul. Indeed, the previous verse tells us that Samuel mourned for him and the Lord regretted or or was grieved that he made him king over Israel. But the Lord says to Samuel, it's time to move forward. I've rejected Saul as king over Israel. And that's a word that has cropped up a number of times throughout Saul's kingship, the word rejected. You might say it's a motto of Saul's kingship. Israel's initial demand for a king was in fact a rejection of God as king. In chapter 8, verse 7, it says that. And then in uh, chapter 10, verse 19, this is made very clear where Samuel says to the Israelites, but you have now rejected your God who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities, and you have said, no, appoint a king over us. So Israel rejected God in asking for Saul. And the failure of Saul as king was that he rejected the word of the Lord. In chapter 15, verse 23 and verse 26, it says that. And so, consequently, the Lord has rejected him as king. Rejection is the, was the, the motto of Saul's failed kingship. And so Samuel is told, it's time to move on. Second half of verse 1, 
The Lord says, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. Go to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. Literally, the Lord says, I have seen among his sons for myself a king. Uh, seeing is a big theme uh, throughout this passage, as we'll see. Excuse the pun. Um, God has looked at Jesse's sons and has seen for himself a king. Uh, there are actually two words in, um, in the original language that don't appear in the NIV. Uh, they're in other more literal translations like the, the ESV, which is uh, on, the screen, uh, on the screen there, uh, where it says, I have provided for myself a king among his sons. For myself, the Lord says. This, this is God's chosen king for him. And that's in contrast to Saul, who is presented throughout 1 Samuel as, as the people's king. He's the king that the people wanted. Uh, so, for example, in uh, 12 verse 13, Samuel says, Now here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. Yes, God is still sovereign over choosing Saul, but Saul is very much described as the king they asked for. But here in contrast, God is now choosing or seeing a king for himself. His chosen king. And so Samuel is sent to Bethlehem. Now, you can understand Samuel being a little bit reluctant at this point. Things between him and Saul were not so good. And uh, he's concerned Saul might hear of this plan to appoint a, a king and uh, take action to stop Samuel. And so Samuel questions the Lord, how can I go? Verse 2, you want me to anoint Someone else to be king? Saul's going to hear about it and he'll kill me, says Samuel. The Lord tells him to to go to Bethlehem and offer a sacrifice. That that can be the the official reason for the visit that that Samuel has come to offer a sacrifice. And Samuel, it says in verse 4, unlike Saul, Samuel did what the Lord said. Samuel takes God's word Seriously, he obeys. He goes to Bethlehem, invites the elders, particularly Jesse and his sons, to the sacrifice. Jesse and his sons arrive and Samuel sees the first son, Eliab, and he's impressed, verse 6. He says, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Well, see, he thought that. He's tall, he's impressive looking. But verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. There's that word again. Uh, Now, as you read that, you think, well, who who does Eliab remind you of? Who who else was introduced as an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than all the others? Saul. Who else have we been told that the Lord rejected? Saul. That is, if you see as, as man sees then you are led by impressions, by appearances. But the Lord sees differently. See there verse 7, halfway through verse 7. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now this is a a key verse, uh, and we need to to think about what this means. Uh, 
The Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. At the very least, this is saying that God's vision is unconstrained. And we can only judge on appearance. Uh, our point of view is, is limited to our experience, our understanding, our, our knowledge. But God knows all. He's not limited as we are. He knows a person's heart. His, his point of view is unlimited. Now that's true. But I think this verse is actually saying much more than that. Um, I'm not alone in thinking this. John Woodhouse, the uh, previous principal of Moore College and Old Testament lecturer and scholar, he has, has helpfully unpacked uh, this verse in his commentary on 1 Samuel. And if you, if you want to dig into 1 Samuel, it's an excellent commentary. Dr. Woodhouse says this uh, about this verse. He says that understanding this verse properly is, quote, in my opinion, the key to understanding the whole of 1 and 2 Samuel. More than that, it is really the key to understanding life, the universe, everything. That's a pretty big call, isn't it? But I think he's right. So what is this verse saying? Well, this second half of this verse 7 of chapter 16. More literally, this verse says, and I'll come up on the screen there, For the Lord sees not as man sees, for man sees according to the eyes, but the Lord sees according to the heart. It's got to do with seeing, with, with how we see, with how God sees. We, we see with our eyes. We take in impressions. But God sees. He looks upon people according to his heart, according to his will, according to his intentions. That is, God's point of view is determined by his own will and purpose. God sees according to his own intentions, his heart. And so he, he looks at Eliab and he doesn't see him with his eyes as Samuel sees him. He sees according to his heart, according to his will. God's will is not to make King Eliab, uh, Eliab king. And he sees him that way. Hope you're with me. Hang in there. This, this is a little bit tricky, but it's important. And it actually makes a lot more sense of verse 1. Remember I said that it literally reads, I have seen amongst Jesse's sons for myself a king. Which is why the NIV translates it as in our Bibles here, I have chosen one of his sons to be king. God sees, and that is God chooses. He sees according to his heart, according to his will. This is about God's choice. God's choice of a king for himself. And this is what Samuel said back in chapter 13, verse 14, where he says to Saul... 13 verse 14. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. The phrase there, a man after, his own, after God's own heart, that's become a kind of popular Christian jargon to speak of someone who is particularly godly, you know, someone with a heart like God's. Um, or we, we might use the phrase to talk about ourselves. I mean, if you do something that uh, I really like, it's the sort of thing that I like to do, that I might say, oh, you're a man after my own heart. Um, but I don't think that's what this is talking about. And I think that phrase, unfortunately, uh, can cloud what this is actually saying. So a man after God's own heart is a man of God's own choosing. 
a man that God has set his heart on. A clearer way of putting this might be a man according to God's own heart, according to his choice, his will. Um, John Woodhouse puts it helpfully like this. He says, a man after God's own heart is talking about the place the man has in God's heart rather than the place God has in the man's heart. So it's not saying that, uh, that the man who, who turns out to be David is, is an extra godly man who strives after God's heart, who wants to be godly, and so God picks him to be king. No, it's saying God simply chooses David according to his own will and heart. This is talking about God's gracious and sovereign purposes. And if you're still not quite convinced, there's an interesting parallel verse in 2 Samuel 7, verse 21, um, where King King David, this, this man after God's own heart, says, For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. That phrase there is the same. This will is the same word translated heart. Uh, and David, David says, you've, you've done this according to your heart. The word translated according is the same in 1 Samuel 13 verse 14 after. So David was a man after all according to God's heart. Well, so what? I hear you say. What's the big deal? What difference does it make? This tells us something really important about God. It means that God didn't choose David because he looked into David's heart and saw that he was a good bloke. No, he chose David because he, if you like, he looked into his own heart, his own will, and he determined that David would be king for him. This is about God's gracious and sovereign choice. David is not the the king that the people wanted, as Saul was, he's the king God wanted, that God chose according to his heart. The big theological word for this is is election, God choosing. And the doctrine of election is something that uh, that can freak people out. Um, And I know that's caused many a debate in Bible study groups over the years, Uh, but it's actually a wonderful word. Let me give you four reasons Firstly, it's a biblical word. Uh, we see God, God choosing, God electing, ha- happening again and again throughout the Bible. God chose Abraham and blessed him. God chose Israel out of all the nations. God chose David to be king of his people. God chose Jerusalem to be his city. God chose Jesus as his chosen one. And Jesus is described that way often now. For example, in the, the Mount of Transfiguration where the voice comes from heaven. It says, this is my son whom I have chosen. It's in Luke, it's in Luke 9, verse 35. Uh, other places, Matthew 12, 18, Luke 23, 35, 1 Peter 2, 4 and 6. So Jesus is God's chosen one. And if we are believers in Christ, we are described as having been chosen by God. See that in a number of passages, such as Colossians 3, verse 12, it says, therefore, as God's chosen people. 1 Thessalonians 1 4, 1 Peter 2 9, Revelation 17 14. If you want to grab those references, go and look at the YouTube video. It'll be on there. So the doctrine of election is biblical. Secondly, sometimes people don't like the, the idea of election because it seems kind of kind of scary. You know, we're we're not in control. But actually, this truth should give us great comfort, great 
assurance. God's good and gracious purposes don't depend on our performance and on our will. And so we can rest knowing that God is in control. His will will be done. We can rest assured in that. Thirdly, sometimes people can, uh, don't like this idea of, of God choosing some because it can sound kind of arrogant. Yeah? Who are you to say that you're chosen by God? But this truth, actually, it actually pushes us in the opposite direction. It's not arrogance. It should lead us to humility because it's, it's God who is in control and it's his will that will be done. And so there is no place for our pride. Election leads us to humility. And fourthly, it should also lead us to prayer. Sometimes people can say, well, you know, if God chooses to save some people and, and, and not others, well, well, that's not fair. How come he chooses to save some and, and not others? How, how come he chooses me and doesn't choose my friend? Is that fair? Well, I want to say two things. Firstly, no, actually. It's not fair that he chooses you in that you don't deserve it, and neither do I. In fact, it's only by his grace, by his will, by the merciful choice of his heart that you or I or anyone is saved. So, no, it's not fair in that sense that you are saved, but let's be careful in demanding that God give us what we deserve. Secondly, if God is in control, if he is the one who, who graciously saves people, then the only sensible thing for us to do is to pray to him and ask him to graciously save other people. So rather than shake our fist at God and say, why won't you save my friend? Much better would be to bow our knee before him and say, please, Lord, save my friend. After all, he's in control. He's able to do it. And, and who knows, God may decide to work through your prayer, to answer that prayer and to bring your friend to salvation. So despite the bad press that the doctrine of election sometimes gets, it is biblical, it brings assurance, it leads us to humility, and it should lead us to prayer. Back to this passage, 1 Samuel 16. God tells Samuel that Eliab is not the one. Jesse's next son comes in, Abinadab. No, the Lord has not chosen this one either, it says. And then Shammah, no. And there are four more. You can imagine the last one thinking, you ripper, must be me. <laughs> My lucky day. But no, he's not the one either. And Samuel says to Jesse, verse 11, are these all the sons you have? Jesse thinks, says, oh, well, there's still the, you know, there's still the youngest, the boy. I mean, but I didn't think you want to see him. He's out with the sheep. They call David, they bring him in. His appearance is described there in verse 12. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. We might wonder that why, why his appearance is described since God sees according to the heart, not the eyes. And I think what's interesting is what's not said. There's nothing about his, his stature, his impressive size. He's a boy, he's just a kid out with the sheep. and He's a handsome boy, but he's hardly the stature of a king. Yet the Lord sees him according to his plans, his purposes, according to his heart. And he sees for himself the king. 
and says to Samuel, verse 12, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. And friends, here is the answer to the problem of the points of view. The Bible's answer is the simple but powerful fact that God has a point of view. His point of view is ultimately the one that matters. This is the reason why Christians can't accept the, the postmodern idea that, that all views are equally valid. I mean, sure, our, our points of view are limited and I can't assert my point of view over your point of view. Our human knowledge is limited. But human knowledge is not the only knowledge. God, because he is God, his point of view is absolute. And so we, without our different points of view, we, we can only start to see properly and fully as we learn God's point of view, as we see things, how he sees things. And that's what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us how to see David as God sees him. The Bible teaches us how to see the great son of David the Lord Jesus, as God sees him. And so the question for us is not, what's your point of view? The question for us is, do you see from God's point of view? Do you see as God sees? Or are you only seeing from your own point of view? What difference will seeing as God sees make? Well, firstly, we will see Jesus for who he is, the rightful ruler of all, the saviour that all need, the one who will judge all. Seeing as God sees means that we will see who Jesus is. Secondly, as I said before, the fact that God is in control, that he graciously chooses whom he will save. Seeing things that way, that gives us great assurance. It leads us to humility and it should move us to prayer. Thirdly, if we see as God sees, then we'll understand ourselves in God's plans and purposes. Which means that if our trust is in Jesus, then we are God's people only by his sovereign grace. Just as God chose a, a boy to be the king, his king, God often chooses unimpressive, weak, small, seemingly insignificant people and he uses them to bring about his purposes. That's true of us. Are we impressive in the eyes of the world? Not really. Are we powerful in the eyes of this world? Hardly. Are we significant in the eyes of the world? No. But listen to how God sees things, how God chooses to work. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the world. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let no one who boasts Sorry, sorry, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. From the world's point of view, uh, from our point of view, we may be insignificant and unimpressive, small, weak, foolish, but from God's point of view, by his sovereign, gracious choice, 
through his chosen one, our Lord Jesus, we can say that we are his chosen people and he's working his purposes out through us. Through us. How good is that? How great is the grace of our sovereign God, the one who sees according to his heart. Amen.